welcome to Is It My ADHD, the podcast about what it really feels like to have attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. I'm Grace Timothy and I'm a writer and I wasn't diagnosed with ADHD until I was 37. I'd struggled with traits I now know to be ADHD all my life, but it wasn't until a routine hearing appointment with a doctor who happened to have ADHD himself that these traits were pieced together and it was suggested that I get referred for an assessment. Had it not been for that random moment with an audiologist, I'd still be undiagnosed now and still struggling, just like the two million women thought to have undiagnosed ADHD in the UK today. I want to better understand what ADHD feels like for women and non-binary people, in whom ADHD is so often missed, thanks to the fact that the diagnostic criteria and research is all heavily skewed to the white male case study. I've therefore spoken to some incredible women about how ADHD affects their lives, exploring everything from friendship and work to dating and self-esteem. I've also pulled in some experts along the way to help us tackle the big questions from you and from my guests. Is it my ADHD when I ghost old friends, for example? Is it my ADHD when I break the photocopier at work? And is it my ADHD when I share nudes on Instagram? My hope is that we can spread awareness of ADHD in women and non-binary people and that you'll find some comfort in knowing you're far from being alone. Because with the right support, we can be truly amazing. Today, we're going to explore the comorbidities that so often arise with ADHD and as a result, often get in the way of a diagnosis. And I'm with writer and commentator Kat Brown, who was diagnosed with ADHD in 2020. One of the major problems impeding the diagnosis of ADHD in women, girls and non-binary people is that it requires us and a list of professionals to piece together the clues, a lot of which are often mistaken for other conditions, ones which are better known and therefore easier to access treatment for. When I was eight, I had anxiety. When I was nine, OCD. And between then and now, I've been tagged with disordered eating, self-harm, IBS, migraines, hearing loss, antenatal depression, stress, various intolerances, glandular and hormonal problems. And all of them had no real clinical basis or cause, according to the doctors. The issue is that if the root cause is ADHD, no amount of work, meds or therapy will be able to make meaningful and significant changes the ADHD is still there beneath it all. In fact, some anti-anxiety meds can even exacerbate the symptoms of ADHD. Kat and I met years ago during a shared stint at Glamour magazine. A journalist and social media editor, Kat is also an in-demand commentator on the subjects she has experienced closely herself, among them ADHD, mental health and childlessness. Kat, or welcome. I'm so happy to see you. Hello. This is so lovely. I always get a sort of sense of like London calling whenever doing a podcast over Wi-Fi. <laughs> Just sort of both of us in our little podcasting tents. So Kat, before you were diagnosed with ADHD, what were some of the comorbidities that you were dealing with and what was life generally looking like for you? God, it felt like an absolute shopping list, really. I think in my teens and 20s, I didn't know that I had anything classifiably, treatably wrong with me, which just led to me for years just thinking, you know, that I was a horribly defective, broken person. I mean, aren't we all really? Absolutely. Particularly so. And a lot of the things that could perhaps have been diagnosed, I mean, probably not in the 90s when I was growing up, certainly, but theoretically, were also hidden by the fact that I'd been moved up a school year when I was seven, because I am also incredibly tall. Uh, Doctors' solutions to this was to either suggest that I take growth hormones to stunt my growth 
or they just moved me up a school year because I could do like my seven times table at the same time. So this subsequently meant that everything from being very emotional to very depressed, to very anxious, to very hyperactive, to very zoning out all over the place could be explained by immaturity. But then my first comorbidity that was actually diagnosed kicked in when I was 10, just after I'd had a bike accident. And it was putty mal epilepsy, which I think now is known under a different name, but it's basically epilepsy where you have absence seizures. And it turns out that epilepsy is actually the number one comorbidity in kids who have ADHD. So anyway, for years, the focus was on epilepsy. And then I was very depressed through my teens, but obviously I was also a teenager. So that was theoretically explained away by my family and my doctor as just, you know, being a shitty, vile teenager and self-harming, which I also did and which I understand is can be quite common in people with untreated ADHD. That was also dismissed as attention seeking. And so it wasn't really until I got to my first year of university when I just turned 18 and where obviously I'd been thrilled to discover a completely chaotic atmosphere and subsequently was failing all of my all of my classes because getting to French or Italian for 9am is just impossible when you've been out dancing all night or drinking in the bar. So I wasn't diagnosed with depression in my spring of university. I was just given some antidepressants because I'd gone to the doctor and said, I'm really worried about flunking out of university. It's all I have. And if I do, I will I will kill myself and here's how I will do it. That sort of really continued in that I was being treated for symptoms rather than diagnosed with anything. I was given, I remember, four whole sleeping pills in my fourth year of university, partly because they were worried that I might overdose on them, but also because they were tamazepam and therefore quite sort of powerful. So I sort of hoarded these little sleeping pills But by my fourth year of university, I'd sort of gotten the hang of how my brain worked a bit and worked around it. And also because a lot of my friends had left because they were all doing three year courses. So I was just there for my finals. And I'd established that what I needed to pass my degree was to basically just go, do you know what, just do everything that's taught and examined in English. And apart from obviously, you know, the oral exams, if you have to do essays at four o'clock in the morning when you can't sleep, so be it. That's absolutely fine. Just do what you have to to get through. And I did get through and I got a you know pretty good degree and I was really chuffed with that. But years later, in about 2010, 2011, when a doctor said that I might actually have this thing called depression, and that was just when Stephen Fry had really started talking about depression horrifyingly. But yeah, so for for years, I was just like, great, I've got depression. That's brilliant. Why do I still feel like absolute dog shit? And then, you know, more years passed. And I met my husband when I was 30. We got married when I was 32. And everything just sort of wound round and round and round in circles. Because by this time, we were also, you know, trying to have a kid as you do. And, you know, the tick, tick, tick of socially appropriate things that one does and also we really wanted a family together which would have been lovely um and that wasn't happening but at the same time I felt all this sort of resentment and and shock because I was like I've been made redundant like three soon to be four times and my life isn't underway and I don't know why my brain is like this and just there I haven't fixed myself yet I wanted to concretely have fixed myself so I could move proudly into the next phase of my life In 2016-17, when I was working at Glamour, I was really, really feeling depressed again. 
And so this time, rather than just go straight for pills, I rang up my GP and asked for an appointment to speak to the mental health team about talking therapy, as they call therapy. And they were asking me about all these sort of things I didn't think were connected. And particularly, they were asking me about my eating because I'd said, you know, one thing that I would really love is to be able to get rid of the sort of ritualistic habits that I have around eating because, you know, I just keep going into these weird zombie trances when I'm eating certain types of food. And there will be times when I'm feeling very anxious and nervous and over the top about everything. And when I just crave certain foods and particularly certain textures, familiarity and that sort of thing. And at the end of the call, they were like, well, it actually looks like you've got quite a long lasting eating disorder. So we're probably going to refer you to a clinic for that. And I was like, fucking hell. So anyway, more months passed and it turned out that I had binge eating disorder, which obviously I'd never heard of in the same way that I'd never heard of anxiety. So I started this year long outpatient treatment, which was I was incredibly lucky to have. I'd sort of tried bits of therapy before, normally with not very great men, to be honest, but I was just like, I'll, I'll take it, whatever I'm given, that's absolutely fine. But then my first lovely therapist, who I instantly bonded with like a baby crocodile, she had to go on maternity leave very suddenly. And then I had this second doctor who I actually remember nothing about, but then she was taken ill suddenly. And my third doctor, which is again, completely fine, but it just sort of meant that there are things that I'm sort of only now, five years later, even starting to think about dealing with because I just didn't trust them. I still just felt like it hadn't done the job, whatever the job was. And then it just all becomes a blur, really, because then after that, everything became about the fact that my husband and I hadn't been able to conceive. I'd never been pregnant in my life, even though obviously school had drilled it into me that I would, you know, at some point get pregnant and therefore be a failure to my upbringing and to, you know, feminism and society at large and all that fun stuff. And then um, in 2019, we had a round of IVF you know, you get three cycles. So uh, in a sort of Iceland shopping way, one fresh, two frozen. Our cycle didn't provide any viable eggs at all. All my eggs were immature. Basically, I think the point that I want to make is that I had a lot of life stuff going on. I'd already had a lot of near misses with alcohol over the years. Um, I used it to escape from the way that I was feeling in the same way that I used food. I just thought, okay, enough is enough. I'm not going to do this anymore. And I stopped drinking. But what this did, it removed one of my most crucial masking and coping mechanisms. Yeah, I I don't honestly think that I would have thought any more about it if I hadn't seen a Twitter thread retweeted by one of my friends, by an ADHD coach in the UK. I think her name's Anna Granter, asking for people who'd been diagnosed with ADHD as an adult, how did they find out? And I was like, oh, this looks interesting. I just went down this thread and I was like, Oh, 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 well, it's me. It's obviously me. Oh my, oh my God. I was just like, brilliant. Oh, well, this is an answer. How lovely. And I went to my GP with, you know, the metaphorical stack of info and was like, bam, 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 bam. And then they referred me to my old friends, the uh, mental health services. And they were like, yep, you definitely need an appraisal and a diagnosis. We'll talk to you in a year. Jesus. And I was just like, do you know what? I'm really tired. I've been on waiting lists for all of the binge eating therapy, for talking therapy, for IVF, and that is all wonderful. And I'm bloody lucky, but I've got this tax money sitting here, hashtag irresponsible ADHD thoughts, and um, I'm going to go private. And I went private. And because dad, who I'd asked to do the what was she like as a kid thing, was just like, oh, she didn't tick any of the boxes for ADHD at all. And because my parents hadn't kept any of my school reports, because I mean, you know, at the time I was like 37, why would you? 
So I had to have this thing called a QB check, uh, which is like the world's most boring test. When we had our catch up to give me things, he gave me the number, which was really high. And I laughed hysterically. So it was just unequivocally, here is the answer for why I have all this shopping list of stuff. And here's why my brain behaves like this and why I'm essentially an overexcitable golden retriever in a human body. And this is amazing. And I thought I'd sort of reached the pinnacle of the mountain and that I'd be running back down now and everything would be easy and the wind would be at my back. And of course, then you've got all the rest, you've got all the next bit that comes after diagnosis. Mm. Well, and also the comorbidities that you've lived with don't magically go away when you take an ADHD stimulant or, you know, it doesn't just suddenly disappear, does it? It's, It's ongoing. But I think like when you tell your story, and I think what resonates with me is that there's this sense that we go through life and obviously we have ADHD in the background and it's almost like being trapped in this body that doesn't keep up with the mind and as a result all the things that that you know that you describe the depression and the anxiety and the feeling othered and all of those things and and even things the physical kind of manifestations of self-harm and disordered eating and all those things it's it's like a cry for help crossed with just this ultimate inability to express what's happening and having to do something with it whether it's the energy or the just the negative feelings that you feel around other people I mean this might be really 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 early to ask but what's your game plan like how do you feel in terms of what's next well a you've just expressed all that really beautifully but the the idea of a game plan is kind of hysterical to me I saw a post the other day because I find the ADHD and the ADHD women hashtags on Instagram really helpful. And also there's lots of fun cartoons, which I really enjoy. But this idea of almost being enabled to think about the future, which is partly why when we dive into sort of like ridiculous scenarios or that sort of thing, it's like there's no thought about the future. As regards the ADHD, I am still trying to work out medication because whilst, you know, medication is obviously not the be all and end all, I had tried every freaking coping mechanism in the book, from yoga to mindfulness to exercise to lovely baths to, uh, you know, just everything. At the moment, I don't really, I don't really have any outlets at all. My hip is quite difficult and it means I don't have much strength in my legs as I would need to do the kind of very active horse riding that I like. And I should probably just go for a nice walk or something on horseback. But, you know, when you've had a taste of gallivanting around with a bunch of friends on a fun ride, it's no, but being with a horse is still lovely. So I will try that. The doctor that diagnosed me, I'm still seeing and still, you know, coughing up private prices for, and I will gladly do that. I was still trying to work out a medication that works for me because of my background of addiction and, you know, basically just misusing food and alcohol. Initially, it was all a bit wary about whether I should have stimulants, which is, you know, totally fine. I did try a stimulant straight off and didn't respond very well to it and had some weird side effects. So I went on a non-stimulant for quite a long time in conjunction with my antidepressant. And then that wasn't sort of really helping a lot. But yeah, trying to find coping mechanisms and ways of working and also ways of looking after myself. So I'd become incredibly isolated entirely due to my own after the IVF and everything, but partly because I just felt so guilty about having so much stuff and everybody's got loads on. And I was just like, God, if I feel really bad, then everybody else has got lots of stuff on. But I finally, you know, reached out to some of my friends 
recently and was just like, I just don't have any resilience left. And I feel really, I just feel really crap. And one of them gave me some brilliant recommendations for a counsellor slash therapist. And sometimes I think I am, in fact, very often I am paralysed by too much choice. And so just having a trusted friend go, here, I've narrowed it down to three, look at them, see what you like. And yeah, so I contacted one and I'm going to start seeing her regularly again. And I think that will be really important. I'm also seeing a PT and to do PT and physio with me twice a week because one of the huge ironies about this wretched ADHD is that I can be very hyperactive and focused on things I like, but I'm supposed to do daily physio to help my hip and my muscles and my joints and everything. But every time I do them, the exercises are so small and so painful and so focused that they, I don't know what they give me flashbacks to, but they give me really traumatic flashbacks and I feel really ashamed and I literally I'm getting teary just thinking about it now oh, um mm. and I just I just can't do it and then I feel so guilty about the fact that I'm not doing my physio and therefore you know I'm making myself worse and then I have to go Catherine you're not making yourself worse your bones are literally buggered and they have been since you were born so you know you just having a wail about the fact that you can't do x y or z is it's just not I think also wail on, like keep wailing, because actually it's all a bit shitty. Like no matter what the issue is, and, and there are obviously lots of things to deal with here, it's 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 good. And I think there's too much made of kind of the emotional lability as a terrible, terrible part of the condition of ADHD, when actually who's to say that our expression of emotion isn't exactly how emotion is supposed to be expressed. And, you know, this kind of the sort of stiff upper lip and, and get on with it and be brave and all those things. I don't know. I've subscribed to that for years and then suddenly in the last year, having understood more why I feel so extreme with my emotions, I'm like, okay, well, this is it. I'm so excited to announce that this podcast is sponsored by the first makeup brand I ever bought as a teenager, Benefit Cosmetics. I saved up for Benetint for weeks and that love remained strong when I became a beauty editor years later. Roller Lash is my absolute favourite mascara of all time. Gimme Brow Plus and Precisely My Brow are my go-to brow products and I still use Benetint on the daily. Makeup is something I reach for to give myself a moment to ground, to breathe and be in my own thoughts for a minute, just like my own personal form of meditation that happens to help make me feel fierce. Benefit has remained a mainstay in my own routine for more reasons than one. I love the way Benefit connects customers with amazing causes and today is amplifying various voices around neurodivergence. I'll be working with Benefit not just on the podcast, but they've also asked me to explore how the Benefit counter experience can be more accessible to those with brains a bit like mine. I'll be sharing the ways we're working together and would love to hear your thoughts on this too. I still can't believe I'm launching Is It My ADHD with my OG beauty obsession at the heart. I think it's really difficult when you are in environments where nobody else has that level of dysregulation. And certainly when I started horse riding again, inspired as ever by the London 2012 Paralympics, <laughs> I really loved it. But I would have these panicky moments. It was like all my anxiety was coming out on horseback and and I would just end up sort of bursting into tears. And certainly I noticed since I I did some things called emotional freedom technique, which is also known as tapping to sort of get through like trapped memories and that sort of thing that was sort of getting in the way of my riding. I had hypnotherapy, all sorts of stuff. 
to try and figure out what this blockage was. And I, I mean, I really have noticed a difference since I've come to understand myself more. Uh, partly like the beta blockers help uh, for sort of lowering heartbreaks and, and stop thinking that you're going to, you know, die or something. And I've used all of those things in terms of how I'm dealing with what I now know pretty much as childlessness, uh, when we were sort of starting to tentatively look into adoption. And my God, I mean, that was just too soon after all of that anyway. But again, like at that point, when we decided that we would put a pin in it and probably quite a permanent pin, it was because I realised that I really needed to focus on my mental health. But also from what I understand is in order to be approved for adoption, you know, your brain needs to be as close to way one as it possibly can be. And my brain is like a freaking piece of Swiss cheese. It's just like insomnia here, comorbidities over here, ADHD over here. Yeah, I think we're probably just going to have to deal with deal with that as it comes, which is why I'm very glad to have found a new therapist, uh, to have found a community called Gateway Women. There's an amazing writer called Jodie Day, who's written pretty much the only mainstream, you'll find this in bookshops, guide to, you can't have children, you wanted children, what the F are you going to do now? And that sort of also has inspired me to try and think of something that I could do. So I'm working with the publisher Unbound to launch an anthology of women's stories about almost motherhood, baby loss, miscarriage, childlessness, because I don't just want there to be one book in the bookshops. I want there to be a choice in the same way that with ADHD literature, it's sort of gone from a few books that you could only get if you ordered from America to an increasing number of British written guides. And that's just absolutely wonderful. But we need to hear multiple people's stories and and also for them to be really easily available. So I'm really, really excited about that. And I think it's going to be amazing. That's you also taking your you know, you've got the hyper-focus and the passion and the kind of unbridled interest and also in your fellow man to be like, right, this is what I'm going to do with this energy then and this information. Like, I'm going to plough it back into the world, which is something that's coming up time and time again when we talk to people on this platform is is just this kind of need to give back, which is amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. And also, in some cases, I mean, for me, it's almost... Not necessarily giving back, it's giving what I didn't have. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, yep. So I first wrote about depression after my friend died and I wrote about it Huffington Post first of all and then and then in The Times and then in Grazia and then in some other places because, I mean, I don't think I can overstate this enough. I felt really, really bad about myself and about living in the world and about how on earth to engage with other people and to do what other people found so effortless. And I don't want other people to have to feel so isolated and alone. I want them to be able to go, oh, uh, if you're feeling like that, you've probably it's it probably worth going to the doctor, actually, because you're not a horrible person. Your brain is literally lying to you. Or, oh, well, that's really interesting. Do you know, I read about this person the other day who blah, 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 blah. It's as, about, as much about informing people who don't have these things as about people who do, because people that don't have those things you know, your kid might do, someone in your family might do, a friend. I find it as a writer incredibly valuable as a way of sort of almost finishing processing certain feelings. Obviously, when I'm in the grips of it, I can't process anything because you're living it and that's madness. Um, and I've turned down quite a lot of things since where I'm like, oh, that sounds a little bit like, oh, angry, bitter, childless stereotypes. Mm -mm, no, thank you. Um, I actually had a, a newspaper piece spiked immediately when they received the copy because all of the women in it 
were like pretty cool and upbeat and yes yes misery but the flip side of misery is black humor and laughter and sharing uh so that was quite eye-opening and and the same with adhd as well it's like after i sort of twigged from that twitter thread that that might be the case for me i was googling all over the shop and so all of those articles that i read about women being diagnosed later in life and the reasons for it were so important and i eventually got my adhd doctor on board and was just like can i interview you for a piece please and found out all these amazing things and these completely eye-opening statistics about you know when adults full stop started being diagnosed in the uk which was you know barely 20 years ago and women as adults being diagnosed uh, you know sort of like 2013 it's also sort of shedding a light on why I have felt sort of inextricably drawn to friends from years and years ago, or even people who weren't particularly good friends. They were just people I met, but we're still in touch. And then later it turned out that they also have ADHD or they're about to be diagnosed with ADHD. Mm. And certainly a lot of people I know, perhaps people listening to this podcast, feel an awful lot of grief for the life they could have had if they'd been diagnosed younger. And I mean, personally, I have absolutely no regrets and I'm really thrilled to have been diagnosed at all. That said, I think as we get older and more horrible crap happens, either to the people around us in life in general or to us or to the world, I think our resilience levels really, really struggle. And I think thinking back to when I was, you know, being thrown pills left, right and centre in my 20s. I mean, also I had the metabolism of a 25 year old. So, you know, everything's great. Just dancing around in short dresses, wearing five tons of makeup. Loved it. Lived life. Whereas now I'm just, I feel like Eeyore crossed with a giant freaking Galapagos tortoise. I'm just like, oh, another thing on my back. I realise I'm saying this and sounding like I'm very, very low. I am very, very low. But having felt suicidal quite a lot in the past, I've sort of, I've personally had to come to terms with the realisation that for me, that's just not something that I'm ever going to be able to do. And this may be because of the shame aspect of ADHD is so built in with me. And also because my parents have spoken about finding me very difficult growing up, which obviously I was, but you know, that's a it's a bit of a sucker Kick you when you're down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so there is that thing about not wanting to bother anybody. And for me, all of the many, many times I've just wished that I could just disappear and that I didn't have to worry about anything anymore have been sort of waylaid by the fact that somebody would have to find me. And again, it's sort of the idea of being an inconvenience to somebody is more painful than staying. And actually, my husband and I have quite, as you might imagine, quite robust conversations about this, if ever I'm sort of feeling like this. And he's just like, yes, it bloody is harder to live. And obviously, the feelings that lead you up to feeling that way and, you know, suicidal ideation and self-harm are huge comorbidities with people with undiagnosed ADHD, because suffering is obviously the human condition and even more so in an undiagnosed ADHD brain. It's why we see all these dreadful statistics about, you know, people with undiagnosed ADHD being so much more likely to end up in prison or divorced or or addicted to various substances. Because, you know, whatever gets you through the day, and if you're not able to emotionally regulate, and if you're not balanced, and if you are spontaneous and not thinking about the future, then it's it's a cocktail for complete disaster. Well, and also if you're surrounded by people who don't know that you have ADHD along with you and aren't able to look after that, that's quite key when you mention your husband. And I know I have the same with mine, that there's been a steady hand there. 
through, you know, some of the more tumultuous times. One of the things that worries me with the comorbidities is that, for example, anxiety obviously is a huge one. There's some kind of evidence now to suggest that it's not even anxiety in the true sense of the word that someone with ADHD experiences. So we do experience anxiety and obviously it's linked into a lot of the shame and the other kind of things that we go through just by having undiagnosed and untreated ADHD. But there's also this idea that rather than having the fight or flight response that are because the neurotransmitters aren't working as they should and they're not filtering the noise, that it's just a case of kind of overwhelm. So a lot of the physical symptoms are the same. So you can go to your GP or in my case, I was eight years old when my mum was like, right, we need to like go and see someone. And And, you know, she's got breathlessness, she's got racing heart, she feels sick, she's got sweaty palms, all of those things that a doctor, understandably, who, you know, very few have experience of ADHD, goes, "Okay, that's anxiety. Tick. Let's put you on this. Let's do this. Let's do that. And it's all fine. And then, you know, I've worked on anxiety all my life. I've read all the books. I've had the tapping. You know, I've seen psychologists, counsellors, all those people. Every time I can afford to do so, I've done it. And it's come back or it's evolved slightly, but it's still there. And obviously now it makes me a little bit cross. I'm still in the slightly angry phase where I think that was all on on me, really, to sort of sort that out. And actually it was the wrong diagnosis. And so I think what's important and what we want to do with this podcast is to make sure that that kind of awareness is spread through both the person who's having to go to the GP and the GP themselves. I really like that point. And thank you for telling me about overwhelm, because I was just listening to that going, Yes, of course, that makes total sense. Because I think it's interesting, obviously, because we're all on a spectrum. And it's interesting seeing how many overlaps there can be between aspects of ADHD and autism. So when I was talking about my eating disorder earlier, and talking about being really pulled towards specific textures. So that's not in the same way that an autistic person or a certain type of autistic person might, for example, only be physically comfortable with eating certain types of textures. But it was that I associated, uh, for example, I don't know, the softness of cookie dough and then the bite of chocolate chips or something. And it really did come down to being as granular as that, that that was going to help me to calm down and sort of get into a sort of centred, grounded place again. But you're, you're completely right. It's just there are so many things that we have coughed up for over the years to try and fix ourselves or to try and make ourselves work and to try and make ourselves fit acceptably into boxes. I'm not saying that we should all be going around with like our shirts over our head and our boobs waggling in the sun or something going, I'm just being me, this is great. Although, you know, that would be quite fun on a hilltop. I don't know, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a lovely workshop for next year. But the conclusion that I've come to about how I need to accept this in order not to be extremely angry all the time is pretty much the same one that my husband and I reached after the second round of IVF failed. And then we came out and we came to this really lovely conclusion together that whilst this was really bad for us, the only thing that really comforted us was the idea that in 40 years time, this might be different and that this not working for us might contribute to the science that leads to other couples having sort of a good outcome down the line. And that was kind of amazing. And that's sort of how I feel about writing about my experiences of these things, you know, because normally I'm writing about them because I haven't read many articles about them. And in the same way with my anthology, I want that to sort of change things and help people. And the same with this podcast, which is just amazing, because I've been trying to find like a a British podcast, because 
ADHD provision in Britain is so bad. So I want one that specifically deals with that. Totally. It's, I mean, it's, it's like light years behind America. I think it's also because on another podcast, if I was talking about arts or something, I would be masking a lot and very conscious and watching myself. Yes. Short sentences and clear points. So I really apologize to you and all the listeners because I'm just like, freak flag is flying. Hurrah. That's how we roll here. My questions are unending. But I think so in terms of comorbidities, which is this is what this is all about. Do you feel like they have been cumulative and something that you can put down to ADHD being the root cause? Or do you think sometimes it's a clusterfuck and, you know, we experience more than one thing and they're never in isolation? Well, so an interesting conversation that I've been having with my ADHD doctor, this always makes me feel like a sort of 90s TV character talking about my analyst, <laughs> is whether or not I'm feeling depressed because I have depression coming back because I've come off my antidepressants because the ADHD meds I feel should be a good umbrella for everything. So I've been having this conversation where I think that when I have been feeling like really sad or depressed, it's not been because of depression, it's been because of something literally that's made me quite sad and upset. And similarly, I think whenever I see that, I mean, thankfully, quite rare now, awful thing about how, oh, ADHD diagnosis, it's become a real trend, hasn't it? Oh, oh my God, like lol. And I, I just think back to my experience of writing about depression and, and sort of like the early 2010s. And that was exactly the same then. It was like, oh, it's very trendy to have depression. Yeah, that's really cool. Amazing. But I think an, another really interesting thing is that Yes, there is a huge prevalence of TikTok videos, reels, and really interesting social media content. Not always done by people who actually have expressed knowledge of ADHD. I saw a hilarious one about morning routines the other day that was tagged with ADHD. And it was just like, lol, good luck getting anybody with ADHD to do that. But then when there are the lists of symptoms or comorbidities that might sort of fall under the ADHD umbrella, I think it's really important to acknowledge that looking at this list and going, God, yeah, I feel all those things. That doesn't necessarily mean that you have ADHD. It's if they are chronic and if they are continuous and if they are ruining your sodding life. So obviously, I don't think people are necessarily diagnosing themselves from all of the lists of comorbidities and all of that understanding, but it might give them, and it certainly did me, the spur to research it, to really take a hard look at your life and your experiences and your brain and go, okay, yeah, I think actually this has been going on for so long that, yeah, I think it would be really interesting to actually get an expert point of view. Because you can't get diagnosed unless an expert does it. It's not like you can buy it off Etsy or something. It's just like a Cosmo quiz. You're just like, oh yeah, <laughs> ping, ADHD, depression. Yeah, I've got all those things. I think also like we mask. So uh, nobody around me knows when I'm anxious other than my husband. And, and sadly now I think my daughter does pick up on quite a lot of it. But I'm masking the hell out of it because that's how I've grown up. And, you know, you've talked about the kind of various demands that have been put on you. You've coped in some way, whether that is by self-medicating or whatever it is, you cope and you mask. And I think that's the really difficult thing about ADHD is that we cover it up and we don't feel it's acceptable to be frank about those things. I mean, I can't even imagine as a healthcare professional who doesn't have a huge amount of experience of ADHD to then go, are you covering Are you covering something up in this two minute appointment that we have together here face to face? You know, I mean, it's, it's just a minefield, isn't it? Also, the fact that it's that thing of unpicking ADHD. So, is it your extreme emotional response to something? Is that ADHD? Are you depressed? 
when you like cannot deal with a room full of people and a meeting and having to sit still for it is that ADHD or are you anxious how you know how do you kind of work that out or negotiate or navigate that kind of system of it could be any one of these things it's really hard is I think the answer and I remember having a discussion with one of my three eating disorder therapists about the idea of comfort eating and how on earth do I tell the difference between comfort eating because I've had a crap day at work or it's a Friday night and I'm knackered and I just want to sit there with like a tub of Ben and Jerry's or something. How do I tell the difference between that and binge eating? And, you know, the answer was is that, well, you know, comfort eating is perfectly normal. There is a reason why we all go, mmm, delicious carbs and why if you're feeling a bit low and a bit delicate, you reach for a nice plate of pasta. Mm. And so I need to think about, well... I'm going to completely reinvent what my life means next year. Not like have a great big makeover or anything, but what matters to me and how can I help other people and what can I do to be of service? And like a really small way that this started was my husband commissioned a friend uh, to make a little free library for outside the front of our house. So now, even though obviously we're not part of the local schools or anything like that, we're part of the local community because people really, really love that library. And it also means that if I get sent books or something, then I can put some of my old books into the library, but it keeps ticking over by itself. So I need to find ways that I can be in my community and be of service and help people. And hopefully if I can do that in a way by reducing stigma and, you know, just talking about things, because we contain multitudes in in many cases, it's multitudes of mental health problems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, I think one of the most helpful things that anybody has ever said to me about ADHD specifically, you have achieved so much with so little support and you should be really proud of yourself. And I think I want anybody listening, and that goes for you, Grace, as well, to really pick up on that. Like, this is basically a new dawn for women's brains and knowing more about them and I mean it sucks that we're here obviously but well bloody done and we'll keep on regardless well bloody done you too and thank you very very much Kat Brown for sharing your story and your experiences and I can't wait to see you at 40 smashing it thank you amazing thank you so much Kat we now turn to an expert So another question for Dr. Joe Steer, chartered clinical psychologist working with children in Surrey and the author of Understanding ADHD in Girls and Women. Joe, is it my ADHD or is it anxiety? So such an important question, but also a really challenging question to answer. Anxiety is really common in in the population at whole, but particularly in um, women with ADHD. And this is where it gets a bit tricky, really, trying to pull apart what's ADHD, what's anxiety, actually what's a little bit of, of both. When you're anxious, you find it hard to concentrate, you have problems sleeping, you might talk excessively, you might struggle and avoid social situations. So all of those symptoms of anxiety can also be symptoms of ADHD. And that's where it can get quite confusing. And there's this overlap And I think what often happens, particularly for girls and women, is that ADHD gets mistaken for anxiety because actually if you go to your GP 
or maybe talk to someone at school and you're a girl or a woman with ADHD, they're much less likely to think of ADHD as a possible explanation for what's going on. And they're much more likely to think about anxiety and depression. So typically that stereotype of ADHD being about boys bouncing off the walls, the behaviour aspects that we all know and we hear about all the time are what falls into people's minds and not your anxious woman or girl. And this is where it gets tricky because actually people don't even think of ADHD when they see these symptoms of concentration problems and sleep difficulties and avoidance. They go straight to anxiety for girls and women. Thank you so much for joining me and this community of amazing people. We'd love it if you could follow Is It My ADHD wherever you get your podcasts from. And now I'd love to hear from you. What other perspectives would you like to see explored in future episodes? Find me on Instagram at Is It My ADHD to continue the conversation.